and welcome to the Cinema Syndicate Podcast presented by Boot Crew Media out of New Orleans. I'm Matthew Scott, and this is the best and most fun movie review show on the internet, stretching its hot take tentacles from the West Coast to the East Coast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Preston Barnes out in California. How you doing, Preston? Right on, fellas. Doing well. And once we move over towards the East Coast, we got Mr. Joe Ray Fine in New Orleans. How you doing, Joe? Bonsoir, mes amis. How we doing? Great. And we got Mr. Budge, the hitman Husky in Washington, D.C. What's up, Budge? Ooh, long day, but feeling well, guys. How are y'all? <laughs> and uh, tonight we got a really special guest. His name is Mr. Cameron Easley. I think he's in North Carolina. How you doing, Cam? Doing all right. Uh, well, we're just happy to have you on the show. So tonight we are doing um, The Dirty Dozen, 1967 classic war film. Um, and as always, before we get into the show, we'd like to encourage all our listeners to please, if you enjoy the show, if you love the show, if you listen to it and you haven't gone out and rated our show five stars or could just give it a rating on iTunes, it helps us so much. The more ratings we get, the more listeners we get, the more listeners we get, the more you can talk about our show with all your friends because that's what you want to do. So please go out and rate our show. We'd appreciate it so much. Uh, before we get into the Dirty Dozen, we are going to do our marquee picks. Let's, let's all... introduce our guest. How about I, that? Okay, sorry. I didn't know if you wanted a grand introduction. Cam, do you want to say just a few quick words about yourself, or do you want to just keep on going? Yeah, I'm originally from a small little town uh, called Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, most notably known for uh, surviving the atom bomb uh, about 60 years ago. Uh, that's right. A uh, B-52 bomber broke up above Goldsboro that was carrying a nuclear warhead. Uh, nuclear warhead tumbled to the ground and buried deep underneath the turf. Uh, luckily, it did not uh, ignite. Otherwise, and it still hasn't this been recovered, true? correct? It still hasn't been uh, recovered, correct? Uh, I believe that's correct. Yeah, um, it's like a mystery. Oh, and, got uh, some homework to do. Yeah. Is that um, the secret uh, they, sauce they, in Wilbur's they, Barbecue? They did, <laughs> they did actually get it out. But yes, that's uh, um, plutonium-241. Uh, in the in the Wilbur's recipe. Well, I think what this means, though, is that Cameron's takes are going to be radioactive tonight. Uh, <laughs> well, we are, we're not afraid of the really, really shitty we need, puns. We need a sound effect for that. Yeah, I was really hoping to get some like accent laughter from you guys, but you just really stared at me like, <laughs> are you fucking serious? Uh, so, <laughs> well, before right. let's let's do Cam a solid intro. Cam is a managing ed- senior managing editor at Morning Consult Media. Um, a he covers campaigns and elections uh i would argue it's probably some of the best campaign election coverage there is in the game uh speaking of north carolina i think that they sort of take up a slot that probably used to be filled by ppp and what one of my favorite things they do to the listeners out there is they kind of ask an x question in a poll that really puts a different spin on it uh and it might be something like you know they'll, they'll poll north carolina and ask which you know are you an nc state fan and it'll put a whole new different spin on the data but anyway i commend anyone who just Interested in politics or any sort of cultural aspects, following brands, check them out. That's right. It's Morning Consult. We're interviewing more than 5,000 Americans across the country every day. Uh, we oh. also poll in uh, 14 other countries around the globe, including China, Russia, Brazil, France, England, Spain, Italy, etc. G7 plus a few. Um, Do you have a Twitter account? I do. Cameron underscore easily. That's a hell of an intro there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to really follow that because we're, we're just interviewing one person right now. He's been interviewing 5,000 people a day. One of my favorite things about Cam is he once also used to host a radio show in Memphis that 
completely talked about soccer. That is. That's another little uh, nuclear nugget. Yeah, I mean, I think we could get at your whole biography. I mean, what's your birthday, Cam? Uh, I'm not going to be that explicit, but I will disclose that I am a Scorpio. <laughs> oh, so a little bit of mystery for the listeners out there. Shout out uh, to to, no, so what we're going to do, though, is we're going to move on to our marquee picks, and we're going to let Cam jump on first so you can tell us a little bit more about yourself by revealing what your picks are. We're going to do our favorite rogue galleries because Dirty Dozen does feature 12 sort of misfits coming together as a team to you know complete a mission. So we're going to do our favorite rogue galleries in cinema or TV. So Cam... Special guest, if you want to lead us off, go for it. All right, number one, we've got The Dirty Dozen, uh, classic 1967 film um, where, you know, a bunch of guys on death row get recruited on a pretty much a suicide mission to kill a bunch of Nazis in a French chateau. What's not to love? <laughs> um, number, two, that. number two, this is actually a legitimate rogues gallery. Um, it's, a, it's an actual lineup. Going with the usual suspects. Nice. This was almost on my list as well. Uh, and then uh, for number three, um, I'm going to have to go with uh, the 1981, I believe, uh, film Victory uh, about some POWs from the West um, who take on the Germans in a soccer game and escape. Just uh, pass it to Pele. <laughs> You got Pelé, you got Sylvester Stallone, and you got Michael Caine. Joe, I feel like you used Victory one time. I can't remember what the topic was, but didn't, aren't you really familiar? You love that movie? Oh, man, that's a classic film. I, I, there are so many stars in that movie, uh, both British and American, that it's 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 up there for me with one of the best you know feel-good war movies out there. So wait, how, I mean, I, I've really never even seen it. So how's it classified as a rogue gallery? Is it a bunch of like prisoners of war or something like this? Is that how it works or how does it work? Yeah, they're, they're a bunch of uh, British and American prisoners of war who cha- are challenged to a soccer match against the Nazis in uh, the Stade de France in Paris. And they and all the, the allied uh, players escape at halftime. It's pretty cool. Uh, were they winning at halftime? I think it was either tied, but you could tell that the the refs were against them. It, 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 it's it's a good movie. Go out there and watch it. Okay. No, I haven't seen it. Budge, are you a big Victory fan? Uh, I think I've only seen it one time, and it's certainly been a while. So I can't, well, again, I can't hard say I'm a huge fan. Yeah, I mean, this is like the the hard thing for me sometimes when people start mentioning movies I've never seen. I sort of get sort of my foot in my mouth that I really have never seen it. But now, since it's been brought up twice on the show, I guess I've really got to make the effort. So, um, so Budge, why don't we move on to your picks and start with your third and go all the way up to one? Sure. This uh, this was a little tougher than I thought. I, I had a, I really struggled here for number three. Um, and I guess I'll give an honorable mention later. But uh, my number three uh, is going to be the classic uh, sci-fi show slash movies, uh, Serenity. Firefly, which is kind of your again your classic space opera, space western, where you've got like a bunch of outcasts from all sort of fringe parts of society who are kind of a crew together on a ship, um, and they kind of again get into hijinks and have some larger mission, but a bunch of ne'er do wells uh, who ultimately try to do the right thing. Uh, hearts are in the right place. Um, my number two is going to be the 1989 Cleveland Indians from the hit film Major League. Damn. <laughs> This was a solid group of lovable losers who managed to make it all the way to the pennant uh, and failing to make the World Series. Uh, I also 
on this topic kind of reminded me of one of my favorite Cameron Easley stories. Cameron once announced, was, I don't know, if, I guess it was the play-by-play, the congressional baseball game, CQ roll call, for a few innings. Uh, so I guess I got to ask him, how do you think the Democrats are going to fare without Cedric Richmond? <laughs> uh, I think they'll, uh, I think they'll still have enough in the tank. Everybody has been talking a lot about uh, who's the um, who's the former NFL player that got elected in 2018, Colin Allred. Yeah, from Texas uh, or outside yeah, of Dallas. Uh, he's he's supposed to be a beast. Um, so like, I don't think he'll be probably like anywhere as prolific as Richmond, um, who's pretty much like the the Babe Ruth, just kind of bringing together the ace pitching and the home run king um, simultaneously. Uh, but, you know, he should be able to, you know. Is this like real baseball or is it slow pitch softball? Kind of like oh, it's real baseball. Yeah, real, yeah, baseball? real baseball. Oh, damn. He, uh, he was my local MP. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damn. Wait, did he actually play? Yeah, he uh, played in yeah, college, and then house. and then he coached house? at Tulane when he was in law school. Okay. Wait, so like, who's got a? So who's the ringer? So we got him, like yeah. the Democrats actually have some ringers, and the Republicans don't. Uh yeah. Yeah, Cedric Richmond was. I mean, he he was a man among beasts when he played, <laughs> or a man among boys. He was like Randy Johnson out there just dealing, and no one. <laughs> Just crushing pigeons. Let me pull up. I'm trying to pull up these career stats. <laughs> Colin Allred plays or uh, played football, right? Yeah. yeah. Wasn't he like a tight end or something? Yeah, I think that's right. There's some other professional. I'm really just trying to jog my head and thinking about <laughs> athletic congressmen, and none of them really come to mind at the top. <laughs> I think I think Cory Booker played football. Oh, I don't know. Did. That's right. And now I'm just like getting weird um, thoughts. I'm like, oh yeah, he's got a good body. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he seems tall. Yeah, he seems like he fit. Uh, I do like. I mean, I do remember like seeing all these things on Twitter of like Ted Cruz playing basketball, but it's more hilarity, not like he's actually good at it. Uh, There's probably a couple of, of former punters in there. <laughs> if you played college sports, if you were a college athlete, and then subsequently you're in the United States Congress, you're going to dominate at pretty oh, much absolutely. any sport. It's, it's, it's pretty much guaranteed. That's, yeah. like your, that's like your first act. You're like, what sports are we trying to do? I'll, I'll, I'll partake in each of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't forget Heath Schuler was it sounds a congressman like it's, from North Carolina. That's like a Veep episode. Hell, the baseball like, player, too. <laughs> I feel like that's like a Veep episode where they're trying to get somebody reelected. Like, they'll throw money at someone's super PAC because they've got to win the like the <laughs> softball game or something like that. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Anyways, all right, go, Budge. Go for number one. <laughs> Um, Cameron, if you find any stats, feel free to interrupt here. We'll go. But <laughs> check, my, check the chat. It's in there. This is this is good stuff. Some saber metrics, yeah. His war. My, Cedric, uh, Cedric's in a leg of his own. My number one is uh the bastards from Inglorious Bastards, which obviously is, is heavily influenced by the film we're gonna review tonight. Uh Imagine. but again, what a diverse group of people from kind of all, you know, walks of life. You got Aldo the Apache from East Tennessee, you know, some some Brooklyn Jewish cats, and then you got Hugo Stiglitz, just some crazy German over there, just causing havoc behind enemy lines. Uh I think they're they're kind of the ultimate rogues gallery as well. Uh, yeah, no, that's I, a good one. I mean, I, I was gonna kind of bring up Inglorious yeah. Bastards, but really actually not just because I haven't seen it in so long, but it is absolutely one hundred percent I feel like Tarantino 
watching, I mean, uh, Dirty Dozen and was like, I really want to make that movie, but in a modern sense. Because I wasn't even going to ask, because like, how would you adapt the Dirty Dozen into a modern movie? And then like, it went back to my head. I was like, oh, Tarantino already did it. So, it, I mean, it's 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 such a good yeah. movie. And if I mean, it's yeah, it's it's got it's pretty much Dirty Dozen, but with like Tarantino's. What do you want to say? His voice and like his dialogue is so great. That was number three on my show notes uh, for the questions to ask. It was last night or yesterday when I was watching the film. I, it was how much did Inglorious Bastards steal from Dirty Dozen? <laughs> <laughs> and what did you say? 75%? 65%? Uh, there was a lot of the plot where it was just trapping a bunch of Nazis in a confined space and opening fire on them. I think that was a big part of each movie. So I would say the better Particularly thing. Particularly the endings. Yeah. yeah. The better yeah. thing Tarantino did was he gave you Christopher Waltz as a villain to really, really hate. And that sort of drove um, the plot a little bit better. Uh, but other that, than that, it's that very opening, similar. That opening scene with, uh, what is his name? Hans Landel, right? Yeah, ha- yeah, something. It's just man, it's out, yeah. riveting. Like that <laughs> is some serious, like tense. Like you could feel, you could feel that scene. I remember seeing it in the theater. Um, yeah, what a character. And that was like Christoph Waltz's first like big time film. I feel like that kind of took him to another stratosphere. Like an yeah, American movie for sure. Amer- yeah, big, yeah, first American. big like Hollywood movie. He was doing right. all those like European movies or whatever, but uh which, you know, aren't worth our time. But nope. uh go ahead. <laughs> we'll punch to Joe's picks because we we gotta do five picks. So go ahead, Joe. All right, boys. Um this was actually a great uh genre of marquee picks. I, I applaud the uh the host um i'm gonna go with number three this is i think i picked this before you've probably already heard of these movies that i picked before on the show but you know they're all classics so that's why i'm picking them number three i'm going reservoir dogs uh just the ultimate you know heist team and the main takeaway i'm going to get from that one is how professional mr pink was steve <laughs> Shimmy. like if you ever really wanted to fucking have somebody on your back when you're stealing shit like you, you need mr pink like he's gonna blast his way out of there and fucking not think twice do you think those guys are more professional than the oceans 11 guys we'll get to that okay sorry. Oh, God. <laughs> does mr pink die uh mr pink makes it well, isn't isn't there? I mean, like that's kind of one of the like what exactly happens to him essentially. It's oh, kind right. of like a well, question towards the end. Yeah, he didn't get yeah. Um, he didn't get nabbed. Uh, that, that's true. I, I, I Buscemi's usually a survivor, other than Fargo, don't you think? <laughs> I like to think he survived. Yeah, yeah. Buscemi's no? got that. I look like a cockroach could survive a nuclear holocaust look to his face. But yeah. <laughs> and to Budge's point, like I'll also I'll also um posit that the the heist crew in reservoir dogs is the exact opposite of that of oceans 11 you have like one crew that refuses to use weapons and the other that that's pretty much their modus operandi you know um so number two i'm gonna go move on to my number my second one it is the italian job the 2003 version just for the sake of familiarity with you boys uh mark Wahlberg and um the ever beautiful uh south african um oh, wait. charlie's there uh, oh yeah charlie Theron. Theron. yeah what she's so stunning show. you can't and... even remember her name <laughs> that's right well i mean like all i was thinking about was her, her figure yeah um, my jokes just are gonna keep getting worse the whole episode <laughs> <laughs> keep them coming keep them coming yeah. <laughs> well 
if I'm gonna pick one dude off or dudette off this crew, I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight uh, Handsome Rob, played by Jason Statham. Uh, he was the wheel man. Jason Statham. Yeah, if I ever had to pick a role for myself in a heist, I'd be the wheel man. Just throwing that out there. Dick and gear man. You're just throwing that out there in case we go through <laughs> with our plan. Well, yeah. you know, if anybody out there in Podland is uh, is looking for someone, all right. Number my number one film, uh, Rose Gallery is going to be Ocean's Eleven. Daniel Ocean and uh, Rusty, played by um, uh, Brad Pitt and the ever sexy George Clooney. Um, and the the dude I'll highlight off this crew is Bernie Mac. First of all, rest yeah. in peace. I can't believe we lost him and we haven't gotten over it. Um, but that aside, the funniest thing about him, his character in that film is he loves to get his fucking nails done. I want to track down the place that he goes to in Amsterdam because it looks badass, the place where he's getting you know taken care of. But uh, just a classic crew. Um it was originally a Sinatra film, a Rat Pack film, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, and uh, was remade with um, with the mod for the modern audience. But it's one of those things where I think the the remake is just as good as the original. Yeah, you know what like differentiates that one kind of from Dirty Dozen, maybe some of the other ones we've talked about is Ocean's Eleven. It's a rogue gallery where they sort of all have a specialty, where they're all recruited for one special purpose to fulfill the mission and like so in dirty dozen maybe not everyone like everyone's just sort of a prisoner and there's sort of that's sort of their modus is that you know they want to get out of prison but everyone everyone on these like those other ones at least in oceans 11 right it's like this guy's a gymnast this guy especially with locks this guy can do this and this and this and they all sort of like that's i don't know if the genius behind it or maybe that's i i i maybe i'm just like kind of lost for words a little bit here but it's also maybe sort of a plot device too is where each person gets to showcase their talents, but it does make it a little bit more interesting, right? Like, cause when they're introducing person people, that's like, this is what he does. And like in the back of your head, when they're sort of doing the heist, you're sort of just waiting to see how he fits into the whole story. Um, I don't know. That's what I kind of like about oceans 11 is that everyone's sort of unique. Oh whereas... yeah. Defined role. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, Preston, let's move on to yours because we got to keep this snappy. Let's yeah, go. mine's going to go quick since uh, two of them have already been discussed and picked. So uh, let's see. Number number three, uh, also in Glorious Bastards. Honestly, I could change this up with my number one, which uh, you'll hear shortly. But uh, nothing more to really say about that. It is it is similar to Dirty Dozen. I didn't even really think about that. But it is also one of my probably top three Tarantino movies. Um, Let's see. Number two. Okay, so this might be where Budge gets a little uh, picky here, but I'm going with a series of villains from basically one superhero uh, franchise. That's the villains from Batman. (laughs) You've got and they're, you know, they're reoccurring. They are criminals that generally work against the protagonist. So I feel like that should suffice there, Budge. But um you know, so many classics. You got the Joker, you got Two Face, you got Riddler, Penguin, Catwoman, Poison Ivy, Bane, uh, Mr. Freeze, Scarecrow. I could go on and on. But yeah, Preston, I out of the superheroes, that, to, to me, that that's like the best cast of villains. I, I think you you slide by here on technicality in the sense that these oh, villains God. all have a <laughs> propensity to work together. Oftentimes, because I really that's really true, kind of the, the key part of a rogues gallery, right? Is that they're like kind of a team. 
Um, yeah, so like it's like and kind of a, villains, right? a legion of doom, but kind specifically of. Batman's villains. Yeah. So, so is your favorite Tommy Lee Jones as Two Face, <laughs> Jim Carrey as Riddler, Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy? What is that's Batman Forever? That that would not be my favorite. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I mean, cue that for the graphic. Yeah, 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 yeah. That I mean, is, it, I mean, that is a uh, any opportunity a to put like Uma Thurman from uh, Batman Forever on is definitely definitely going to happen. I do think Poison Ivy is badass, as we've discussed before in a, I guess a couple pods ago. Um. Anyway, all right. Number one, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, you know, it's just it's what it's it's such a great film. You get six criminals together, all going by aliases: Mister Blonde, Mister White, Mister Blue, Mister Pink, Mister Orange. Uh, Mr. Brown and, and basically going through this diamond heist that just goes horribly wrong. And after that, it's just, you know, the, the Tarantino takes it to another level. This, I think this might have been, I know he wrote True Romance or he did the screenplay, right, Matthew? Yeah, this was like, but so he wrote True first... Romance and he wrote Reservoir Dogs and they, uh, they gave him the opportunity to pick one to direct because he wanted to do right. both. And they said, and he picked Reservoir Dogs and they let, uh, Tony Scott do, uh, True romance. Yes, yes. And it's just interesting. If, you, if you're a big Tarantino fan, go back and, and watch or like or just listen or reading of his interviews talking about that time because he's so young and it was so important for him to have Harvey Keitel on on that, you know, on the set because they like they needed, you know, they needed like a, a seasoned vet with all these young actors who have gone on to be pretty big actors at this at this point. But it's really cool. Great movie I, if you haven't seen it. I mean, what a way to just like start your career too. I think he had written something else, maybe like that wasn't as big. But in terms of the first big things he did, obviously Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, two like awesome classics. Mad props to Quentin Tarantino, and obviously he's gone on to write and produce and direct so many other awesome movies. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, and I think Reservoir Dogs more than True Romance though really like established his voice. I think he sort of like took that as a launching pad. True Romance was a little bit. I don't. I, that doesn't really feel. Maybe Tony Scott and them sort of like watered it down and took away some of the Tarantino elements of it. But like Reservoir Dogs is the one that really, really you go like you can tell like where he's going from his career after that one. Yeah, uh, establishes his style more or less. Yeah. It's different, you know. And the was it nineteen ninety two had to be wildly different than a lot of films at that point. Oh yeah, and uh, all right. So we're gonna move on to mine. We're gonna make this real quick. My number three, I've got Jorah the Hound, Jon Snow, Beric Dondarrion, and Thoros of Mir, and Gendry, and the Game of Thrones Season 7 episode of Behind the Wall. Uh, number two, I've got the Guardians of the Galaxy, which, I mean, they're nice. all criminals, they're all sort of misfits. Uh, I thought that was, like, one of the least heralded movies when it was coming out and then turned out to be, like, one of the favorite movies of the MCU. Narrowly missed my yeah. list. Oh, narrowly. Yeah, it's okay. so good. It's hilarious, too. Oh, yeah, and, you know, yeah, of course. And then you get to see even Zoe Zaldana's like hot as a green alien. So it's just fantastic. <laughs> Number one, uh, I'm surprised no one mentioned this one. I've got the Mighty Ducks, the original one. I mean, you got Goldberg, a fat kid, like a super strong dude that doesn't have any parents. You got a girl, you've got like the class clown. And you've got Charlie who like, you know, he wants Gord Bombay to like hook up with his mom. It's just a really big like hodgepodge of kids that come together. And then like... Don't forget Adam Banks, the talent. Oh, well, yeah, of course, but he's a part of, like, that, like, Syrian race of the hawks over there, right? Like, the, all those perfectly, like, groomed, preppy Do you mean Aryan kids. race? Aryan race, not Syrian. <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
<laughs> this is like Preston's. That's a, that's a Gentile moment. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, it's Preston's like Gentile clip from last week. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. All right, sorry, oh, my bad. Damascus moment here. I was really, really, well, really on a roll there. So, well, Matthew, I'm I got to on ice. And Budge, Budge, I'm very interested to see what you think uh, about this. So, I I thought that felt to me like a band of misfits kind of thing. And, and what Matthew was describing made me almost want to pick the Goonies. Uh, but I I went away from that due to them not really being criminals necessarily. I think this one qualifies as criminals because Fulton technically has a record. <laughs> right. I Same. believe he does, right? Bash Brothers. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know again, you know, criminals was. I, I just kind of just meant more like guys that sort of were on the fringe of society more than well, I meant like Crew. So there in that go. case, Crew would have been a, a solid in that case, Goonie, Goonies would work. And honestly, they do have a criminal. I'm pretty sure once Sloth joins them, he is a <laughs> technically a criminal. So I think Goonies should be up there for honorable mention. Yeah, my my other honorable mention. I made sure not to do superhero teams because I thought we'd end up doing that at some point. But uh, it would probably be the this was going to be my close number three, but it was the squad from Archer, uh, the TV show. Yeah, uh, you know, like the, the adult cartoon with H. John. Benjamin oh yeah, the whole, like crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, like, <laughs> obviously, misfits and French society members. I thought uh, Matthew. I thought you were going to do uh, Harry Potter, like Draco and Lucius and Voldemort. I don't know. I mean that didn't even cross my mind, but uh, I didn't think of like magical misfits, Preston. I was I mean, as much as, as, <laughs> as much as it is always on my mind. For another time, being like Hogwarts or whatever. Yeah, no, sorry, not no no Harry Potter references this time, but who knows? Um, so I think that's going to wrap up our marquee picks, and we're going to move on to the feature film, which is the Dirty Dozen. So uh, this is 1967 Robert, or no, yeah, Robert Aldrich war film, Dirty Dozen with Lee Marvin. Let's be kind of a huge cast characters: Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, John Cazares. I, I don't even know how to say these names, but I know they're famous. Casavetes, yeah, and then uh, Telly Savalas as Maggot, who was also what? Who's he? Uh, that like famous? Isn't he Kojak? Telly Savalas. Yeah, Kojak. Yeah, man. Uh, so before we like get into the film, this is our guest, Cameron Easley's pick of the night uh cameron you want to like just give a little brief synopsis or whatever in terms of like why you love this movie why you pick this movie why you want to talk about it or maybe not yeah sure my dad <laughs> used to watch uh old war movies as a kid and like most of them didn't really resonate with me but uh i don't know if it was the mix of like these guys being in prison or the, the plot being a little bit more complex but for some reason it just grew me in uh i've seen it definitely more than a dozen times um, and uh, she's got a really sick cast list. Um, you know, James, uh, Jim Brown, Charles Bronson, Donald Sutherland, Telus of Alice, like you said. Um, and, you know, it's basically a bunch of guys on death row who are on a suicide mission to kill some Nazis. You know, Cameron also Cameron also mentioned to me he thought that Jim Brown was the greatest running back of all time. And I wondered how these Auburn fans were going to take that. And it seems like they took it in silence. I mean, why would I care? <laughs> why, why, why would we care? Well, can I, we kill, I thought there'd be some Bo Jackson stands out here. Well, I mean, yeah, we are Bo Jackson stands. <laughs> I mean, we could save that for uh, maybe we'll do uh, overtime after this and we can talk about. <laughs> well, I think uh, best as, far running as, back best, as far as best running back, Jim Brown takes over Bo Jackson of all time. But I think what Budge was trying to Water be a smart ass about 
is like best athlete of all time because Jim Brown was also the best lacrosse player of all time. And Bo yeah. Jackson was obviously a multi-sport athlete. I think that's what Budge was trying to get at, but he really muffed up that question trying to pick us. Um, but anyway, so maybe why, maybe why this movie appealed to Cameron as a kid so much is because it is a war movie and it's got sort of a distinct tone. It's got a, like a lot of comedy elements to it, but it also sort of juxtaposes sort of that, like with like, like he said, it's got 12 prisoners that are sort of on death row, but there's also a lot of funny elements to it. So, uh, did you guys think when you were watching this, like, did you feel like it had the tone of a traditional war movie? Did you like did it, some of like the ways that it went from being like comedic to serious and sort of like interchange, not interchangeable, but like in very stark contrast? Did you guys like enjoy that? Did it ever like grate you? Did it ever sort of jump out to the screen to you? Like, what did you think about the overall tone? Because it doesn't really feel like a war movie. What do you think, Budge? Uh, yeah, I, I think I kind of agree with you. And, and I, I'm a little bit like Cam, Um, you know, I. My, my dad too big big war movie buff but uh and i and while i, I enjoyed him I, I certainly enjoyed this a little bit more and i think it's right because it's it's probably i mean I, I don't have any you know data to back this up but it's got to be one of the first sort of war movies that sort of like picks at you know the hierarchy in the military hierarchy right it's not like say saving private ryan where you know all the captains are kind of these and the higher ups the brass you know are real redeemable like the best of the best leadership like you know you've got you've got like uh i think it's, was it bream or breed who was like you know he makes at one point uh lee marvin kind of makes the joke that he's like don't get that west boy over west point boy over here you know <laughs> so there's like there's and i think that that was kind of probably controversial in 1967 and that it that's maybe why the script got passed around because people didn't really want to it you know it almost was a shot it could be construed as a shot against the military to a degree uh, and kind of, and again, but I don't think self-awareness and like, you know, being critical and humorous is particularly unpatriotic or anything like that. I, and I think that's kind of why I thoroughly enjoyed it because it sort of subverted that genre, you know, which is something we've discussed at length. Well, you know, what's interesting about you brought up Saving Private Ryan is because we've already done Saving Private Ryan and that's obviously a war movie from World War II, but it starts off, right? Obviously it starts on the, the cemetery, but the main thing that people remember is it starts off with that huge D-Day moment and really sets the tone of this is a fucking war movie. This is serious. And then it sort of leads back into let's get to know these guys. This movie doesn't really even get that serious until like almost the last 30 minutes of the movie, right? So like it almost like really... Uh, I don't know if I'm maybe that's what y'all would disagree with that but like I was just sort of like asking in terms of how like the tone is set with this movie it really does it almost has sort of like an all shucks sort of comedy element to it at the very beginning unlike I said like Save Private Ryan who really starts off with like a huge amount of gusto and lets you sort of really feel the gravitas of the situation this one I what I was sort of getting at was that it really has all these sort of like comedic moments with like the hookers, you know, coming in and then also sort of like they had that like montage of them assembling the barracks and stuff like that. And the then end, it just, obviously the joke when they played the prank on. Oh, Green, and the prank. And he, yeah. And with the general, Donald yeah. Sutherland pretended to be the general, you know, and then and just the whole war games element, too, is sort of like a ha ha we tricked you sort of thing. Right. You know, it's almost like down Periscope. And then. uh and then it immediately cuts to, all right, we're on a mission. Somebody died in a parachuting accident <laughs> off screen. And you're kind of like, okay, I thought we were kind of chuckling it up here. And then they go, yeah, he broke his neck. So like, that's what I was kind of getting at is like, this was sort of a war movie, but it does sort of like just immediately snap into war movie after spending two hours of kind of being, I don't want to call it a comedy, but sort of almost a buddy comedy in that sense. What do you think, Joe? Did you like enjoy the tone of this? Did you, do you think it like eased into it? Well, or did you find it sort of harsh? 
Well, yeah, I think that was the tone it was trying to strike was that these men have nothing to lose, right? So they all know what the game is. They all know the rules of the game. And they, they probably know that most of them aren't coming back. I think, what, three or four people actually survived the, the raid? <laughs> so I think that, you know, you kind of take this levity as kind of gallows humor, right? That they yeah. know they kind of have to enjoy every minute of what they have left. And, you know, they're not really dwelling on what they have, what, what what's going what's gonna to happen, you know, as, as I was sitting here reading the 16 point plan of you know how what what of the raid you get to number 16 and there's no there's no escape plan oh. so you're thinking like oh shit this is a one-way ticket damn it you know what i mean so like that's kind of like the whole that's the feeling of the of the film is yeah it's happy go lucky because most of these guys know they're dead two days you know two weeks yeah, well, Cam, like, so, like I said, it sort of did build up this sort of sense of camaraderie, right? Like, they're all getting to know each other, they're becoming a team. And in the last 30 minutes when they all died, did you, did you actually feel a connection to them? Were you sort of like really sad when that all happened? Like, I mean, that's obviously a part of the tone, too. What'd you think? Oh, man. When, uh, when Jefferson goes down. Yeah, when Jim, when Jim Brown, Brown goes him. down. Um, I mean, come on, that's a heartbreaker. <laughs> really yeah. thought he was going to make and, it, too. Yeah, 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 you're, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, Canadian bacon, um, but uh, is is cited as you know one of the one of the 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 black members of the team who always dies first, <laughs> um, or, or just never survives. Um, but uh, I mean, I kind of feel like the, the the effect of the whole movie is like to humanize uh, a lot of these people and like get you to kind of just like see that they have personalities and stuff. And that by the time they're going to war, you know, they're like, they're about to die. Just like most of the other people that we were, or just, just like a ton of other people that we were sending over there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny that you like say that, like it is the point of the movie, right? They spend two hours sort of creating these bonds and getting like, not just getting to know each other on screen, but the, like us as the viewer getting to know them. And it's funny. You're like, Oh, and then when Jim Brown dies, it really is heartbreaking, but it's almost like they build up his character. And then his whole essence is okay. He's got to drop the grenades because he's the black guy and he's the fastest. <laughs> it's like, he's got 20 seconds. Come on. It almost reverts back to just a stereotype after building up a character for so long. Preston, yeah. what you, what'd you think? Did you like find it? Uh, did you find it more funny? Did you find it more serious? What like when you watched it, did you like think, oh man, this is a war movie? Or did you think this was sort of like what? What was your overall just sort of vibe? Well, one thing I think those stereotypes, by the way, were like very common back then. Like that was, <laughs> you know, these movies later in like the nineties. Like I was just thinking, not another team movie, like the spoofs of them. They started like making fun of some of those cliches. Scary movie. Um, you know, I liked the tone. Like, it was weird because I knew I, I understood this is a war movie, and I start watching it, and you know, I'm listening a lot to the music, which was very, uh, it was it was very military academy, very like slapsticky, and at times it had like a Looney Tunes tunesy vibe to it. Like, oh yeah, it, it felt it, like a '60s and '70s almost sitcom. Like it would like sort of play with the, the burr, yeah, burr, 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 and then it would transition yeah. to a new exactly. scene kind of thing. Yeah. And I really, I mean, like I dug it, honestly, it reminded me of Police Academy, which is like one of my, uh, you know, like favorite slapstick comedies. That would have made a great pick for Rogue's <laughs> Gallery as well. Damn. All right, let's go back. Let's start over. Start the pot over. Uh, yeah. But so, and so like, and obviously it wasn't like a full on comedy it was, and it certainly didn't venture necessarily into like slapstick, although I don't even know if that was a genre really in the sixties, but like. 
it 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 was a little jarring at, at one, when we got to Jimenez breaking his neck, and like I had to pause and like check to see like, <laughs> are, oh, oh, they're serious, he's dead. You know, that, like, oh, no, no, that's God, uh, I don't know, like. It, <laughs> yeah, that that was the weirdest moment to me because I didn't know, if, like like you said, I didn't know if it was serious or if it was just like if that was the way like the right. director and screenwriter was like, okay, this is how we're going to establish that we're just we're not playing board games anymore, yeah. like this is real. But he just was so 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 weird. But like you're late, and he's like he broke his neck, and you're like, oh fuck, like you didn't even like see it. It just like felt just a little weird that it was all happened off screen like maybe it would have like given a little bit more weight and gravitas if we'd actually seen it but maybe that's seen just something that got cut. yeah well i don't mean like see the neck break. I, I don't know i'm not saying that i want some like gruesome horridness of it but like if you actually sort yeah, of like saw him just kind of like his parachute fail i don't know but it, it really did just feel like it almost felt like sort of like a sketch comedy bit like oh yeah he's dead and then like you sort of have to just kind of roll with it um but you yeah, know, the, I don't the, know. it's not it's not like the, all the funniness stopped necessarily when and when they like when the operation was going down. Like, there's still like some funny parts. At least I I found a little some parts kind of funny. And maybe that was because the theme that I picked up on was one like a a more of like a lighthearted action war movie. I you know maybe that's what yeah. they were going for. But um, but it, and, you know, and it's also kind of daunting to like have. I'm sure for these writers, like thirty dozen. Okay. Now we've got 12 characters that we have to like go through and create these stories for. And they do a pretty damn good job of it. Certainly to like, for like, you know, like the base, like five or six of them that you really get to know. Well, uh, like, well maybe the tone though is so like in, in terms of how it is lighthearted is because like we kind of talked about earlier in that, like the difference between dirty dozen, maybe Inglorious bastards is there really, isn't some menacing villain sort of overlooking the whole thing. Like, what do you think it would have like, been a lot scary not scarier but maybe more intense if it, like if they had really highlighted the nazis or something like that or maybe not even like highlight the nazis but made this made like the mission maybe have like more stakes or more gravitas because it didn't like feel like there was ever like any time cons- like time constraints on this mission like we didn't say like they didn't like establish that at the beginning like all right you've got like two weeks to get into shape it kind of was like very very loose in terms of like how yeah, long they had to train or like this Go is ahead, a Jeff. part of Operation Overlord. This was a, oh. this was a part of the larger D-Day invasion, and so they were supposed to go in early and butcher all these Nazi officers, and then the the invasions going on while this is happening later. Yeah, I see what you mean, Matthew. Too like I think what you're kind of saying is like, would could this movie have benefited from like the instead of saying just go blow up the chateau full of Nazi officers, just let's we know that Count von Struben will be there. Yeah, he's like a known war criminal yeah exactly yeah just give a little bit more detail because it didn't feel like yeah we know nazis are bad and yeah we know like knocking off like some of the best generals or whatever would be devastating to their war effort but it really didn't feel like there was something that really really grasped in terms of if they do this this is going to make d-day successful right joe i mean i know that it was like tied to it but they didn't like really dealt they had two and a half hours to do it but they didn't like even explain like why this was so important of them just like oh we're gonna knock off a few generals yeah but well i I don't even think it was that important. I just think that they, you know, had like a target of opportunity and they had, oh, this is a fucking suicide mission. No one's really going to take it other than a a (laughs) bunch of like death row inmates. Well, yeah, yeah. So like maybe that's what the, the, like the thing was. It's like if they succeed, fantastic. If not, kind of like whatever. Did did you get that vibe at all? Absolutely. I mean, it did have like a lazy. Yeah, kind of had like a laissez-faire sort of vibe to it, which I like. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked, but at the same time, maybe I'm just thinking in terms of like traditional movie tropes and writing that you really need something to really, really fight for. 
But like like Joe said, in terms of it's almost like these guys didn't even necessarily value their lives in some sense. They were already on death row. It's sort of like if we die, kind of so what? And maybe that's what makes it interesting, too. It just sort of like it, it, it did for a war movie to me. It just sort of like the tone was so just sort of like happy go lucky. And I'm just sort of like trying to analyze and figure out why it was that way. But like, what do you think, Cam? Like, do you think it would have benefited from having like like one like nasty fucking Nazi or like maybe like some like he's like, you know, they, we got to stop this guy from skinning people sort of thing. Or do you think it was just like kind of cool that there really wasn't that wasn't the objective at all? Well, I think it's I think it's an interesting point because, you know, really for most of the movie, the antagonist is like that other dickhead colonel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who like the yeah. Marvin <laughs> Um, and like, I really think that kind of just, uh, kind of distills, um, like the worldview for those prisoners. Um, like, I don't really think they cared that much about the Nazis, right? Yeah. They they didn't, they didn't enlist. They didn't want to go over there and fight. Like they were doing this as a way out. Um, and like, given that they were, um, you know, felons. Um, I feel like kind of just the the way that they felt like I don't know, like enemies in their own country, even when they're going through like the training process, like is really like one of the biggest parts of the movies. And and like yes, the actual kind of event at the end, which is awesome, um, but is also like in terms of the plot development, it's just like a total afterthought. Well, I mean, I think you like you sort of hit on a really good point, too, is because when they do those like psychoanalysis, right, they don't do it for everyone because it would take too long. But they do do like two or three of them. And they basically like the I don't know if he's a psychotherapist or whatever, but he's just sort of like an officer. And he talks to Reisman and he says, all these guys have like no feeling for any way, like shape or form can conform to authority. They don't respect authority figures, blah, blah, blah. So if we're almost supposed to sympathize with this group of dirty dozen people, like we're kind of living through their perspective it would make sense that the authority figure the colonel is almost kind of an asshole because we're sort of almost be in their shoes if that makes sense i don't know if that's if you understand how i'm trying to get to your point totally yeah absolutely i I think a part of what cam's saying and, and what you were saying earlier it's worth kind of noting here putting on your sort of historical film critic hat is that i think again it's lighthearted may not be the word but you saw a lot of sort of snide remarks at authority from like Charles Bronson and some of the others like quick wit that I think you really became more popular and this came out in 1967 a little later in the 70s right you kind of had your Paul Newman's and you know your Steve McQueen's kind of embodied that sort of like you know kind of rebel you know and and like again your way of like you know quick-witted snide comebacks like even into like later on into like 80s into like Fletch and whatnot I think it's that you're really seeing the foundation for that sort of American hero or and protagonist in movies that kind of start right here. Yeah, and it's also if you want to like talk about culture in sort of a sense, like one of the main like big conflicts of the movie, what sort of like kickstarts in terms of them forming together as a team, was all about shaving. Which I would never it, like if you had a movie right now, like if people were fighting about, oh my god, I can't shave, it really, really wouldn't like ring true. But I think like if you were watching this movie in 1967, where people like always really valued sort of looking clean cut and everything like Not that. Not everyone had hot water. Yeah. And yeah. so like it's but but I'm just saying like that sort of conflict 
probably really resonated resonated a lot more with audiences back then than when it did with like maybe me watching it right now because it just yeah, doesn't I mean, mean that much. Which which is important to take into account when watching this this movie. Like a lot of times, uh, certain things would happen, and I would have to think, okay, well, that's probably how they would do that in the late sixties. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that's how they maybe would have shot this, uh, you know, this scene or like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's at least for, at least for me, that's what I would what I would think about. And, and I also think a lot of those jokes that we might find tropey and maybe like not as humorous. You got to keep in keep in mind in 1967, most people watching this movie had probably served in the military. That's you a know? good point too. And so so like kind of the shots at the authority and getting like the little bit of like one ups and you know come upsmanship in every little way you can probably resonate right. a little bit more than it, with a modern audience. And it's probably why they well, didn't want to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Cameron. I was just going to say to that point, um, Lee Marvin uh, was uh, was one of those people. Um, yeah. And, you know, was shot twice. Um, once by a sniper, and like I'm sure he's not the only person in this movie who actually like was in World War II. So like that's yeah. just another. He had a Purple Heart, I think, and some other medals. I, I saw that earlier, but I think also being in 1967, maybe. We're talking about this, um, you know, why didn't they play up the Nazis a lot or do this or do that? Maybe they just didn't have to then. People like it was still kind of fresh and people are like, yeah, we, we get what you're trying to do and we support it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, they are. They're sort of like the universal villain. And sort of like you said, Preston, it's still so fresh on people's minds. Yeah, you, you probably you don't have to explain it to the audience. Maybe like you like, I don't think I need the Nazis explained to me, but it's still yeah, like it's I, I mean, I don't need it. But there's still time. It's like maybe after 70 years. Uh, I don't know if they're like villainy. I mean, obviously, shit. I, I'm almost making a fool of myself. Yes, they're absolutely evil fucking people. But <laughs> I mean, like, I'm just saying from a film perspective, if you watch this movie, they don't seem that bad. But like, if you need that sort of historical context, like to watch a movie, I don't know. Like, you still need to maybe show it a little bit more. But like you said, Preston, it was so in the moment that maybe they didn't need to at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that's that'd be my my guess. Or you know, that and just like that wasn't the general. Well, this like this their, sort their of brings idea. me to the movie. I mean, the end though, too, because uh, you know, I, I've never seen something sort of like so casual in terms of them like trapping a group of fifty Nazis and then just throwing grenades down like the vents and like it, it almost and gasoline and gasoline and it almost was just like I, I don't want to say it was funny, but it was treated so casually in <laughs> terms of like. Like we didn't like there was no sympathy for those people at all in terms of from a filmmaking perspective. Right. We didn't like see them like like crying or, oh, my God, I don't want to yeah. die. It was just like, no, let's kill these motherfuckers and get out of here. And it was just like there was absolutely zero sympathy for them. So what what do you think about like that, Joe? Like what how they handled handled the ending? Do you just care that they just, just like just wiped out a group of people like maybe not all those wives were evil. Maybe I don't know. Like, do you think like they all deserve to die or does it really even matter? Well, I think that kind of underscores the, the kind of people that were sent on this mission, right? That they don't give a shit about, you know, gassing and, (laughs) uh, you know, boiling alive a bunch of people in a basement. I mean, I thought, I thought it was pretty telling filmography wise or cinematic wise that they never really told you the charges of any of the guys, right? They just gave you the sentences. Well, I think the, I, there was one, and I think it's a good point. And this is Charles Maggot, Bronson. Yeah. Oh, oh, not Matt. Well, Charles Bronson, right? Wasn't he the one who shot a medic that was running away with medical equipment? No, that's right. And yeah. like, 
<laughs> and so he, he had to like he was forced to make sort of an ethical choice, right? If if I if this guy leaving like desserts, a bunch of people could die because he's got all this equipment. But if I kill him, I can keep that equipment and save a bunch of people in my team. And so I thought it was like a good uh, uh, you know, like they always say in terms of writing or like storytelling, most don't give characters what you want them to have, give them or what they want, give characters what they deserve. And this guy, he didn't really do something that bad, right? He had to make an ethical choice. And he's he's the only one besides Reisman that actually survives that and the sergeant, right? So I thought that was almost a good point in terms of like everyone else kind of maybe did something despicable, but his sort of sentence wasn't that like, oh, like his crime was wasn't really necessarily a bad crime if that makes sense uh but yeah what, what do you think cam like do you think like in terms of all the people that survived do you think everyone who like do you think maybe some other people deserve to like survive or do you think everyone sort of got their just desserts i mean i don't know how like purposeful of a choice it was in like trying to bring some um kind of measure of uh justice <laughs> Or not justice, but just kind of, I don't know, objectivity or like to to just because, I mean, it was a bunch of, you know, just wives down there. Um, yeah. <laughs> basically like pleading for their lives. Um, but like also like I guess that like that was just war, right? Like that was the job was to kill all the officers and, and leave no survivors. They probably um, had on a bunch of Holocaust victims like jewelry and shit. They're gonna start pissing down those like tunnels. At well, also again for the to put the you know historical hat on. Keep in mind these guys had been living in England, you know, up until that time, and this is going on during the Blitz. I mean, the Germans are bombing buildings with women and children in them, you know, at you know at all the time, every night, you know. Yeah. So and again, like you know, so so say. You know, oh, that's ter- you know that might be said that's terrible they did that, but uh, some would argue, well, they've been doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's just you know when I watch this movie though, like I, I again, it's sort of like one of those show and don't tell sort of things, and I was like almost just hoping that like one of the ladies or something would have done something horrible or evil, and then you could almost like take that attitude and like transpose it onto all the women that were trapped in there. Like maybe like she was just like some really big bitch or said something really (laughs) hateful or something like that. And you're like, Oh yeah, I want that person to die. But like, it just, it really did feel like it was just a lot of maybe innocent people were down there and it was just so casual. Like, yeah, just fuck them. Let's get out of here. And it started with like an innocent woman. That maggot girl, oh, right? Like, that's oh, yeah, she, oh yeah, she was she was pretty horny looking for somebody in that chateau chateau room, and then maggot got her. She walked into the wrong person. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess we can almost assume that that was sort of like why he was put in jail, right? Is that he probably was some oh, sort they, of like they say that? Oh, okay, he, I missed. Yeah. So did he kill like an innocent woman, or did he like a rapist? Well, he or claimed something? that she had, like yeah that he had like he killed her too because she was like you know a whore you know because she was like promiscuous he, he was saving her <laughs> oh yeah he was really religious and also like a racist and yeah that's right i, I, I will say like he, he's, he's definitely the movie's most fucked up person yeah. not, like, really <laughs> and just like a psycho like he had some like the lack yeah. of smiling and just the way he went about 
Well, he was kind of almost like the like the awkward son from Wedding Crashers, right? Everyone else is cool, and then he's like, "What problem, ma?" You know, like he's like he was like screaming from like the watchtower. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like one of those like really weird looking people that just like has to get attention in some really depraved sort of way. That's and why then, they had him up in the watchtower because yeah. he couldn't be trusted around all those women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, know. Would have killed him so, or. Something. Yeah. Well, it, it, it just felt like it's almost like every sort of person, kind of like I was talking about with Ocean's Eleven, everyone's got their like niche, but like in this one, it was sort of a, a, a hodgepodge of people. Like everyone was sort of had individual qualities, but then you had like Maggot, who was just really, really out there, like the outlier, the psycho, just really, yeah. and like you kind of knew he was going to fuck up the whole situation for him, and then that's what happened. Just before we get into raking it, I did a little like, uh, I don't know if anybody else did, just kind of checking some of like the stories of this movie production and uh, like wrote down a couple things that stood out. Uh, one of which I think uh, I know that Cameron and, and Joseph will appreciate as, you know, Anglophiles and, and Bond fans. <laughs> uh, I was reading this story about this production where apparently Lee Marvin was just drunk the entire time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Charles Bronson, like, hated punch it. him in the face several times. <laughs> but there's a story from the production. And again, this is coming off the Internet. So its veracity is, is uh, dubious at best. But he says he says that he uh, at some function, he, you know, made some very crude comments and come ons to a woman there. And the woman happened to be a relative of Sean Connery, who was also in attendance. So Sean comes up and one of the producers has to come and goes, Sean, please don't hit him in the face. He's got his close up tomorrow. <laughs> and Sean's line just goes, you fucking producers and walked off. <laughs> wow. okay, I hope he didn't say something shocked. rude to like the old lady hooker. I thought that was one of like the weirdest like comedic moments that like it was like they had like they had like all these like attractive young women get off this bus. And there was one I, I thought they were going to be like, and this is like the mom or like the uh, madam. The madam. Was, That's yeah, what I thought, yeah. But it actually was just like another lady. And I was like, oh, man. They're really gonna make a joke about who gets this one, and it never really came. I thought, like, oh, okay. she had her eye on a like they were gonna like draw straws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Know. She's like, yeah. bye, major. <laughs> oh, one of the other things too, kind of, we were talking about Jim Brown, and um, I and I, I noticed this too is the uh, production was like uh, going over, you know, over schedule and beyond the schedule, and it was encroaching on brown's training camp so the nfl like proactively put out an announcement that if he missed the training camp start training camp that jim brown would be suspended and in being a man who did not take threats lightly he retired <laughs> right and made a big spectacle of it and he became okay. an actor essentially yeah. like that's yeah. what he wanted to do that's crazy i didn't know i had no idea that was the reason i, I mean I, I knew he retired early and sort of in his prime i did not know it was because over a feud with the dirty dozen so technically barry sanders pulled a jim brown right did Marshawn Lynch to an extent? I mean, Marshawn I mean, played the, but, but, but but Jim Brown only played like six or seven seasons, if I'm if I remember correct. Barry, I mean, uh, what do you, I can't remember. Barry uh, Sanders. Barry Sanders played like a pretty full career. He just didn't want his knees to go away, so he kind of oh, retired relatively sp- early. Speaking of the Lions, like early thirties, Gronk was going to get traded to the Lions, and so he was like, "No, no, no, fuck that! I'm going to retire instead." And the <laughs> trade didn't go through. Huh. Ah, man. Well, I'd love it's to sports see sports talk him. here. People. And now he's yeah, playing think, in the Super Bowl. Yeah, we need to like, I bet Gronk could be like a very good villain in like a kid's movie. Just like that big, dumb idiot who like really scares kids or something like that. God. But um, <laughs> all right. So let's move on. We're going to do like two or three questions from our wheel and then we're going to rate the movie and then we're going to wrap everything up. So 
for our wheel questions tonight, we got number one, a different war. Number two, let's make it sexier as always. Number three, some ethnic flavor. Four, we're all in this together. Five, old man strength. Six, the good, the bad, the ugly. Seven, whammy. Eight, tail as old as time. Nine, let's see Hitler. Ten, respin. We're going to do two or three of these depending on time. Spin that wheel, baby. The wheel is going. Oh, number one, a different war. So if you could change the making or if you were in charge of uh the reboot of a dirty dozen we already kind of talked about this which war other than world war ii would you pick to make a setting of the next dirty dozen go for it wilson or budge uh i you know this is tight off the top of my head and it, it would be quite similar but it would be kind of cool if you did world war one and you kind of incorporated like you know horse and other kind of like items and like had some <laughs> chateau and like landed gentry Right. You sound like like Steve Rule. We like incorporate horse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like no, uh, you want to see more the trench warfare kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, uh, and kind of like sneaking around. Like I guess you could, you know, I guess it's it's been a little. I guess I would argue that World War One's kind of been underfilmed, but 1917's kind of. Um, yeah, World War One's one of those. I mean, it's so difficult though because like the scale has to be so big because it's just millions of people lined up in a line and just shooting shit at each other and shrapnel i mean it's just like i feel like the scale of world one's so much different and it just in terms of like sheer body mass uh joe what do you think if you had to reboot uh dirty dozen which war would you pick i think it would be hilarious to drop you know a bunch of people on death row today into north korea and see if you can <laughs> smuggle them into like kim jong-un's palace or is kim jong-il's palace or whatever and like let them go hog wild on the North Korean high command and like see what happens to the country like in that power vacuum. I think that would be that would, that would be pretty funny. What do you think, Cam, if you were in charge of making another Dirty Dozen? Which which war would you like to see? Uh, let's do the Trojan War. <laughs> I like it. I yeah, like that's it. That's a very deep take. They're all inside the horse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What do you think, Preston? Well, I mean, Joe essentially made up a war. I thought you were going to go in with the Korean War at some point, which I thought, which I think would be kind of cool. And well, they're still I, at war, Preston. Uh, technically, yes. We can get into that a little bit more later. Um, but I, so I just read that Robert Aldrich intended the film as a like an anti-war allegory for what was happening in in Vietnam at the time, which I guess was. I guess, yeah. I mean, I, that sounds about right. But uh, so I guess I would choose Vietnam solely on the fact that, like, let's say that would be like such a risky move at that time and would probably, you know, you would beat Francis Ford Coppola to the punch. So maybe you'd be like one of those first Vietnam movies. All right. So, so we're gonna I, do... I'd like to well, let me uh, let me give one little because I teed this up for Joseph thinking he would take <laughs> it and he didn't. But I think it would also be kind of crazy because this almost was what would occur. But if you did like the Napoleonic Wars. And just had some like South London scoundrels from that era being sent, you know, murderers, cutthroats, pickpockets, like running across, you know, the French countryside. That could be brigands. Yeah, love it. Yeah, I wish I was more like historically literate because I really only know a few. So we're gonna move on. <laughs> I just, uh, I just spun the wheel again. Uh, we're gonna do. Let's make it sexier. So the Dirty Dozen did feature a quick scene with a truckload of hookers, but Joe. Add something to make the Dirty Dozen just a little bit sexier, a little bit more appealing to us, you know, horny 30-year-olds. Well, they were the Germans were holed up in some very fancy 
chateau, right? So like they could there could have been a bunch of German hot women, you know, getting changed or something <laughs> in the wind, you know, in the windows, you know, their silhouettes and stuff like that. I think while they're climbing up the windows or something like that to, you know, to break through, I think there could have been something more like that. What do you think, Budge? Uh, I, I was kind of thinking along the lines of Joseph, like maybe just make the chateau a brothel for, you know, German officers. Uh, and, and kind of along those lines too, you can, instead of like having the whole, maggot thing i guess you could still have it but have one of them come across like jim brown's character like jefferson and it being like you know the first african-american she's ever seen and (laughs) and you could kind of like take run with that right like she like tries to bet him you know oh yeah they already used the other stereotypes yeah what do you think cam if you had to make the dirty dozen just a little bit sexier how would you do it i mean i don't know maybe some maybe some lady nurses just kind of (laughs) uh, throughout the film maybe that can lead to you know some kind of like uh happily ever after with uh charles bronson's character ladislaw at the end whenever oh just right at the end oh yeah they should they could definitely like tease it at the beginning yeah absolutely Um, oh yeah that's right the very last what do you think preston throw some sex appeal in the dirty dozen I mean, I, you know, if it's not the scene where they the they bring a, a literally a truck of women <laughs> to them, um, then I guess it would have to be like something with the chateau. Like, like not only is this a place for like higher like a higher ranking of German officials, but like yeah, it's just like this hidden little like sex club they've got going on. You know, like weird kind of shit, and they all just walk in there and they just keep the comedy thing going on. Man, I, 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 the only thing I was thinking is sort of like as a way to get back at the colonel is maybe like he had some like sexy little wife or something like that that sort of like cheated on him with like maybe one of the officers of the Dirty Dozen. It's just like just another way to sort of needle him and make him sort of kind of the loser that he is. All right, we're going to do one more spin and then we'll get into the rankings here. <laughs> okay, so some ethnic flavor. So one thing I noticed, or I'm sure everyone noticed or whatever that was missing from this movie is that there were like no allied forces in there. No French people, no uh, British characters. Uh, Joe, would you like to see like, how would you have incorporated maybe a little bit more of the allies into this world war two movie? There definitely could have been some uh, like the Cray twins or, you know, somebody, some British gangsters in there as well. (laughs) Um, Some, polish guys you know that were in the mafia there they, they could have definitely been some allied flavor in there you're right would you like to see like a more diverse cast in terms of dirty dozen wilson like would you like to see like a british like prisoner or a french well, prisoner it was it was pretty diverse you know from the standpoint of you know you had an african-american hispanic american and native yeah. american so so i don't i guess you know my critique there would be that i'm not I, you know i'm not so sure that those actors were of of that descent but uh you know kind of to, to joe's point you know if you had just some like quirky frenchman like a, just called like Frenchy that was like you know an ex, a demolitions expert that'd be kind of funny. Yeah, what do you think, Cam? Did, did you notice? Like, did you like think, oh man, were the allies in this, or were you so wrapped up in the story that you didn't care? I could have, I could have used a, a couple more Charles Bronsons. So I guess <laughs> I'm go with just uh, a little more Polish flavor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a, a few more people that could speak German. What do you think, Preston? Would you like to see a little bit more diversity? I think since it, they were basically, they start off in London and uh, we're to assume that that's like where all the prisoners were, right? Like in England. Yeah. I assume, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think, ha- yeah, I think having like, I mean, was there, did it have to be 12 um, like Americans? You know, like, could we have, could we have had a couple of like 
British, like famous British actors from that time play like some of these characters and, and maybe like a dirty dozen, like half, half American, half like a, a variety pack of the allies. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That's just what the question is. I don't know what, like if there was something distinctly, the Hollywood producers were like, no, they have to all be American or not. Yeah. I'm just sort of curious because yeah, I don't know. It you did have some, uh, some, sorry, but some French people in the, um, like the, the chef crew essentially at the Chateau. <laughs> yeah yeah no I, I just i just thought it was like oh because it, it was sort of like like i said earlier it was sort of like they had a comedic tone to the thing and anytime you can sort of like have contrast between different cultures it always adds sort of like some comedic value to it so i always like when i was watching it i thought well maybe they could have done that but they obviously chose not to so we're going to move on to our rankings really really quick out of 25 we're going to do acting plot music and characters so joe start with you acting out of 25 what do you give the score I thought the performances were fantastic. I thought Telly Savalas was absolutely Cassavetes's psycho was amazing. Uh, I'm gonna give it a twenty-four. What do you think, Cam? Out of twenty-five, the acting. Uh, I'll go twenty-four too. I think it maybe like a, a little bit of improvement um, <laughs> for some of the uh, for some of the more kind of like tertiary characters. Um, but I will say, like, I think the best piece of acting in the entire movie is the part where Donald Sutherland thinks he's going to have to speak German to that guy. Um, <laughs> but he just coming in to, to light a cigarette. I love, well, speaking about Donald Sutherland, the point, like, what Budge brought up when he has to pretend to be the German, um, the officer, the general, whatever. And then, like, he seems so nervous at first. And then, like, he grows in confidence, like, in the, like, that first, like, one minute or whatever. And he immediately sort of, like, picks up his shoulders, puts his, like, chin out. And it was, like, a really great transformation in about 30 seconds. I thought that was a great piece of acting. What do you think, Budge, out of 25? Yeah, I was actually going to say I, uh, I was going to give Donald Sutherland the uh, the chops here for the best performance. And I think this was probably his breakout role. I mean, and it's kind of wild. Like, how, how much longer later did we see him as the professor in uh, <laughs> Animal House? But um, I, in in that regards, I'm also going to give it a 24. I think what do you think, Preston? Eight. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. That, you go ahead. Go for it, Preston. Yeah, I would I would say the acting's great. You obviously had some really classic actors. Uh, I, I did love Donald Sutherland's character and and just with how we've kind of grown to know Donald Sutherland over the years, it, it was just, it was kind of a nice, uh, like, uh, it was just a different type of character. I've never, like, expect him to do that. And he was really goofy, and he, he kind of leaned into it a lot. It, it's kind of crazy that we just saw him in The Undoing, right? Which was the big HBO right. blow-up show, yeah. you Which know? Great, and it's like, show. wow, he's still doing this, you know? Yeah, and he was, like, in Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, he's, in so, he's in he's in so much. We can go on and on. That's him in Hunger Games. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Uh, um, so it's great. Yeah. I'm going to give it a 23. Yeah. I'm going to give it a, uh, a nice 23. I think there is sort of like one of those things where it's one of those movies from, like we said, 1967, where the acting style is a little bit different. I could almost feel like some of those guys were formerly stage actors, where maybe now, like some people don't necessarily or aren't as familiar with the stage. I thought like some of those guys, you could almost see like, like, I don't know. Like I was thinking, I could totally see that working on stage, but it almost felt a little overdone at points, like for a movie. But it's still fantastic. I think it like lost in it. So I'm going to go with the 23. 
Joe, we're going to move on to characters. What do you think in terms of character development? Were they all interesting? Do you think they like spend enough time developing the actual Dirty Dozen? What do you give it out of 25? I think they, they did a great job of giving the Dirty Dozen a smattering of different storylines <laughs> of how they ended up being there. They all, they weren't all just bloodthirsty murderers, right? You know, there were some people who were victims of circumstance. There were some people who were absolute, you know, psychopaths. So I, I thought it ran the gamut well. So I'm going to give it a 23. What do you think, Cam? Did you find all of them interesting? Like, did you like? Were you really immersed in the characters? Do you think you could have had a little bit more? Um, I did not find all of them interesting, but I don't really think we were supposed to. Yeah. Um, and I do think they did a good job, um, kind of just working in like you know the the main four or five that they want to focus on, and who they actually like give some room uh, and space to develop their characters, um, and then just kind of giving some of the other ones like some interesting funny names or whatnot <laughs> random shots of like uh laughing in, in, in a group etc so i'm gonna go with uh i'll go 24 again what do you think budge uh i'm you... gonna go 23 here I, I agree with everything i think that these characters were you know were interesting enough but i could have used a little more development and that might be a more modern sensibility but that so be it I would say that my own my other reason I knock it one more point is Teddy Savalas' character. You know, he I didn't think he did a really good Southern accent. Like sometimes he did, and then sometimes and so I, I just that that sort of uh, he him sort of adding to him being Southern felt like unnecessary and kind of I don't know maybe shot us. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, and that he was Franco, right? No, 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 no. no. Teddy Savalas is Maggot. Maggot. Oh, Maggot. Frankie. Oh, okay. Franco's the like Italian their last names guy. Are, yeah, yeah. Their last. Yeah. What do you think, That's, Preston? Yeah, he was technically supposed to be from like Alabama, I think I read. Uh, Maggot. So, yeah, could have done better on the uh, Southern accent there. Uh, I, I mean, I like the characters. I think it's what drives this this uh, film. I do like how they give us basically the the four or five. Yeah, like here here's here are the ones you want to focus on. We don't have enough time to go through the all twelve of them. Um, so I'm gonna give it a twenty three. Yeah, I mean. I, I... Maybe this is sort of my criticism because I was sort of like vaguely hinting at it because I talked about Ocean's Eleven and how every single person sort of has like one specific duty or whatever. And maybe that's too simplistic of like expecting in terms of characters and like, but I would have liked to have like gotten to know a little bit of these characters more in terms of what they, I would have liked to at least have them sort of like the only thing that one person had was the, the ability to speak German and that really distinguished him. So I would like to sort of like see people have like different skills and things that they brought to the, the table, like from their backstory. So I'm going to go with the 21. We're going to move on to music. Joe, what do you think about the music? I am going to lump in sound effects with yeah. <laughs> uh, my music thing because it won the Academy Award for best sound effects. Right. And I, I'm, you know, the, the, what entails with that is the sound of the guns and the explosions and everything. I think that was very well done for 1967. I think it was ahead of the game and it was recognized for that. So I'm going to lump that in with my music because the score wasn't really that memorable. So I'm, like we said, it was kind of militaristic. So 20. What do you think, Camps? Do you enjoy the music? Uh, do you think it set the yeah, tone? 20 is actually what I was going to say, too. Um, and I haven't watched the movie in a little while, so I can't confirm this. But I feel like there had to be a Wilhelm in this movie, at least one, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, of of the the many advances that we've made in film over the past few decades, um, it's pretty clear that that the uh, the score is one of them. What do you think, Butch? 
Yeah, I, I'm going to give it a, a 23. Uh, I'm going to knock it those couple points because it, it was good. I kind of like what you said, Matthew, earlier about it kind of having that old big band feel and, and old school vibe. But, you know, it was 1967. There was some pretty good rock and roll. So one banger would have been nice. <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Preston? Uh, I'm going to give it a, a 22. I, uh, I d- this was, at the time, Frank Duvall. He was kind of like a popular or like a Academy Award uh, nominee type of uh, film score but you know it was really like slapsticky and looney tunesy at time which i guess was very much uh it was very popular then and sometimes this <clears throat> the story didn't really meet up with like like how the music was was you know seemingly portraying it so i'm just gonna give it a 22 i thought it was good i did like the military academy feel to it um but you know nothing too great yeah, no, I, it just depends if you like the tone of the movie or not, because I, I thought the movie did a good job in terms of setting the tone. It, it depends if that's what the, the intention was, but it really did have that sort of lighthearted sort of slapstick tone. And they did use the music pretty well to sort of like emphasize some of those jokes and comedic moments, especially during during the War Games segment. So uh, I'm going to give it a 21. Joe, we're going to wrap it up with the plot, and then we'll just wrap up the pod with that. So Joe, out of 25, what do you think about the overall story, the plot, how did it work for you? Uh, Matthew, I think you underscored this point a little bit for us earlier in the pod when you were talking about how you were a little confused. Where's the sense of urgency? What's the time frame? Why are we doing this when we? Why are we raiding the Germans when we are? And I think if they kind of tied this to the D-Day landings a little bit better than they did, the plot would have come together a little bit more, um, giving it more urgency. So I'm going to give it a twenty. What do you think, Cam? Overall story. Um, I mean. Certainly there are some holes in this movie, <laughs> but um, I feel like it's just a really fun ride. So I'm going to give it a 22. What do you think, Pudge? Yeah, I actually going to go ahead and give it a 24. I think this movie, if you take in the lens of 1967, was, was way ahead of its time. Uh, and it felt like real classic American pulp, like a pulp novel. And again, like, again, don't get bogged down in some of the minutia and plot holes. So I'm going full 2-4. <laughs> go for it, Preston. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not even really like the plot holes and stuff like that doesn't doesn't really bother me because I think it I mean, I think it is a great movie. It's certainly entertaining. It's a lot of fun. I, I just like I just wasn't quite sure sometimes what is the what are you going for? Like, are we trying to be laughing a lot? Like, cause towards the end, I was still like laughing here and there, but I wasn't really sure. Like, I was supposed still to be curious. So I'm going to give it a uh, 21. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think like what Joe said, I think it needs a little bit sense of urgency, a little bit more drive, like a little bit more like maybe like little reminders here and there that they're still trying to accomplish something. It did get kind of wrapped up in being like maybe a character piece and like it, it was two and a half hours, like the training and the war yeah. game segment, I think could have been uh, trimmed down a little bit because it, it takes a while to introduce 12 characters and then you've got to like get into the story and then like there's there were certain elements I thought you could have edited down. But that's not really a necessarily a prop problem. That was maybe an editing problem. But I still love the movie because none of it was boring. I, I never like sat there sort of like twiddling my thumbs, going, "When's this going to get over?" It was always fun, and it was I thought it was a great movie. So uh, I'm going to give it a 23. But yeah, it could have like if they could have like really edited it down a little bit, maybe made it like two hours. I thought that would be like a perfect sweet spot. But no, fantastic movie. So that's going to wrap up our review of the Dirty Dozen. We're going to give a special thanks to Cam Easley for uh joining us fantastic pick and we really enjoyed you being on the show so got any anybody got some final words before we finally wrap this up uh yeah cam you are always welcome back on and please extend the invitation to your beautiful fiance the always talented and always lovely joanna pickinchenza 
you could always use a female voice on the show. You're a, uh, you're a gentleman and a scholar, Butch. I um, just wanted to thank you all for, for letting me uh, make a pick and, and come on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely.